Listener Production. For a long time, I thought mum didn't fit in because she was Chinese. Then I realised it's just mum. Ben, can you imagine squeezing a lemon out of your... Can I blow out the candles now? So much pain. Benjamin Law is one of the nicest guys in TV. He's the creator and writer of SBS's award-winning The Family Law and the maker and subject of an incredible ABC documentary, Walsing the Dragon. I think it's safe to say I'm not exactly a traditional Chinese person. It's a bit of an emotional experience. Ben is also a radio broadcaster. He's a podcaster, author and speaker man of very many talents. I do not have anything against straight people. Some of my best friends are straight people. My brother and my three sisters are all straight. Both of my parents are straight. Uh, My boyfriend, no, that doesn't make any sense. But here's something else you need to know about Benjamin Law. He is super nosy. Every Saturday in the Good Weekend magazine, Ben asks someone famous all sorts of things you're not supposed to say publicly. Through a roll of the dice, he chooses three topics from a list of six to discuss with guests who have included Gloria Steinem, Matthew McConaughey, Chris Pang and Jenny Key. The topics? Well, the topics are awkward ones. Sex, money, religion, bodies, death and politics which is exactly what I'm going to speak with him about today. Coming up, the weekend list where Tate McGregor and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But now, here is my interview with Benjamin Law. Ben, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Tell me about your interest in dicey subjects. It is a gimmick, sure, that we get them to roll a dice three times and whatever they land on, they have to talk about. What we discover is that we end up having, I think, some of the most important kinds of conversations we can have in a really deep and efficient kind of way. But we often don't get a chance to talk about it. Well, we're going to have a chance to talk about it today, my friend, and we're going to start with sex. (laughs) Oh my God, the tables have turned. Yeah, yeah, we're doing it. You're a gay man. You grew up in the 90s when men having sex Uh with one another wasn't part of mainstream media and culture. So where or from who did you learn about sex? That's a really good question. So my sex education was, well, in two realms, like most of ours are, right? There's school and there's home. And school did its best, but because it was an incredibly conservative Christian school, uh, it was ad hoc. And we either got the basics of reproduction or we got just disease genital after disease genital, you know, like sex framed as fear and pus and your things will just fall off if you even have it or think about it. Alongside a lot of like pro-life propaganda because it was a Christian school. But then luckily, Jamila, I was raised in a household that was really frank. And I was raised by my mum, who was for a long part of our lives, a single mother of five really. And she, after five kids, just felt there were no mysteries. Why would we euphemize reproduction, sex, consent, all of that stuff? Looking back, I'm like, actually, mum, you did a really great job. And so, sure, there wasn't that broader conversation about sexuality, queerness, all that sort of stuff. But the fact that 
mum was encouraging us to watch SBS alongside her, you know, SBS world movies. Oh, SBS was where you went for it, right? Totally. So even though we were a part of a culture that where t- homosexuality was still taboo, like I still remember watching like Pedro Almodovar films when I was like 12 or 13. Not that, not because we thought it was highbrow, but because we thought it was entertaining. Like we watched Gladiators, Man O' oh Man and Pedro Almodovar films and art house films because we just all thought they were great and entertaining. We were very lucky. I don't think I have thought about Man O' Man (laughs) since I watched Man O' Man and I should think about it more often. (laughs) The YouTube highlights clips are actually really good, Jamila. You should revisit. Now, I am a little bit obsessed with you and your partner. You just seem like the perfect couple. So I would like the Genesis story in full (laughs) romantic, soppy detail, please. Okay, so um, I imagine one of the reasons you might be saying this, yeah, I post about my partner, uh, you know, um, sporadically. He doesn't like that much attention. But recently we realised we'd been together for two decades, which is in gay years basically dead. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) we are, we're basically 125 years old each. We knew each other at high school because we went to the same high school, which is sickeningly sweet. We weren't together then. We went to a big school. So, you know, if you're in another year level, because I'm the older one, you might be able to tell. If you're in another year level, you may as well be in a different galaxy, right? Um, But then one summer, I ended up working at my dad's restaurant. He also worked at the same restaurant. We had a New Year's Eve where we had to work through midnight, so it wasn't very festive. It wasn't very celebratory. And we decided to celebrate together with another co-worker and then we were kind of getting drunk in the park on Passion Pop and then we felt a kind of a vibe between us and we were like, hey, Anna, our beloved other friend, it's time for you to go back home and push her in a taxi. (laughs) Poor Anna. Took one for the team. I know. And then the the rest is history. The rest being, um, you know, pushing around each other in shopping trolleys as the sun comes up and uh, making out in the sand dunes. A very wholesome, wholesome gay boy beach story. <laughs> All true love starts with passion pop, in my opinion, which is, of course, the cheapest beverage around that can get you drunk very mm. fast. That's my very neat segue to money, Ben. Um how much do you Wow, make? you're going all you're going oh, all yeah. in. We're doing them all, mate. We're doing wow. Them. You know how much do I make? I've actually gotten to the point where I do my taxes and I'm like, I pay bass now. I pay a lot of tax. I think I'm rich. And I don't mean to say that in a gauche way, because I think it's more gauche to say, I'm not rich. Oh, everyone's doing it tough. Like I know what it's like to be middle class because we were raised middle class. I know what it's like for my family to lose a lot of money and to be on the verge of bankruptcy and for our parents to have to basically appeal to the school that we can still stay enrolled. Like I know what medium times are like. I know what scrappy times are like. And now I guess I know what good times are like. And my pie chart of earnings are kind of like all over the shop. And look, I don't know much about investment or money, but I do know that to invest properly, you invest in different baskets, right? And I guess that's what I've inadvertently done with work. You know, I do radio, I do print, and I work in television as a screenwriter. And I do a lot of public speaking, as I know you do as well, Jam. And all of those things combined have put me in a situation where I'm like, oh my gosh, I can buy books without having to think about whether I have that money or not. Like I can go out 
whenever I please. Like I feel, I feel pretty, I feel pretty rich. Let's change lanes to religion. Ben, do you believe in God? I am aggressively agnostic. I know that for so many people that seems like a real cop-out, but the reason I say I'm agnostic are probably for the same reasons I like being a writer. Like it's about exploration and having the capacity to ask questions and being humble enough to say, I don't know, and I'd love to know more. And as much as, you know, science ostensibly says there's no evidence for God, at the same time, I see evidence for wonder everywhere. Like what is nature? How does that squid exist? You know, what is going on? Like there are so many mysteries. Um, I was talking to uh, mitochondriists the other day as a part of hosting this science event. Uh, These are people who study fungi and the way that natural systems talk to each other. And they say, if you go into certain parts of the world, you know, there are so many fungi varieties that you can go to parts of forests where 99% of the mushrooms growing haven't even been identified by science yet. They haven't even been categorized yet. And I'm like, you know, that's kind of mind blowing. Uh, We don't really understand how the universe works. We are these kind of primates with such great capacity for knowledge, but also limits as well. So I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if there is no God, but I wouldn't be surprised if there is a God, but I would suspect that that concept is beyond our monkey brains to process. I feel like we've gotten deep into the fungi and we should therefore <laughs> move on. We should move on from religion. Sure. Because uh, that's not where I expected us to go. Nonetheless, I'm thinking about mushrooms and I quite like it. Bodies, Ben, <laughs> we're onto bodies. Do you like your body? Uh, mostly now. I, I actually got to the stage the other day where for the first time, Jamila, I'm, I'm a pretty skinny Asian dude, right? And I most of the time actually can't buy clothes in Australia. But recently I got to the stage where maybe it's because I'm working out, I swim a lot nowadays. I can buy clothes off the rack now. <laughs> it sounds like I've had puberty Woo-hoo. finally. And I've burst out of some of the business shirts that I used to have. Um, Maybe I'm just getting juicier and thicker. But uh, I have to say, look, I am almost 40. Like I'm I'm turning 39 this year and I'm very grateful for my ethnic skin, as I'm sure you are as well. It's just kind of like, thank you, parents, (laughs) for making us have this kind of like whatever it is, um, excess rich sebum that that nourishes us. Uh, (laughs) I'm... I'm pretty happy with it most days. I can't look like that shredded tall dude, but what I can look like is like a very healthy, fit, young, Asian, Australian gent (laughs) who's learning to exercise more and, and swim a lot. And I'm happy with what that's doing to me. We're going on to dying, Ben. Are you scared Mm. of it? Uh, I am and I'm not. I think I'm scared of pain. I'm scared of leaving people behind. I kind of feel like I'm not so concerned about myself because I'll be gone by that stage. But my friend Corey Taylor, the late author Corey Taylor, who was nominated for the Miles Franklin Award, she was nominated for the Stella Prize for her last book, which was a memoir called Dying, a memoir, which was also when it was released in the top 10 reads from Barack Obama that year as well. And Corey has this beautiful passage in that book where she talks about all the things she'll miss 
once she's gone. And of course she won't be able to miss them because she will be gone or maybe she will be, I don't know, but she talks about, you know, missing the people, the way that nature works, seeing things in Japan and Australia. And I think, you know, if there is a life after death in some way, shape or form, I will miss things about being mortal and alive, but I'm not scared of going. I don't know what that looks like. I'm probably more scared of suffering and I'm more scared like of going before my time. Like if I don't get to see my nephew grow up or if I don't get to see my friend's kids grow up, if I left my mother behind to have to grieve for me, you know what I mean? I'm more worried about those practical and emotional kind of things around death. I think it is one of those things where we don't know And uncertainty is terrifying. And I know that I've spoken to my dad about this. It is his greatest fear, just simply not being. It is a freaky concept. I'm not going to lie about that. I um, have been really sick the last few years. I'm doing okay now. But Mm. I think that's the first time in my life I've really reckoned with the concept. I think I spent 31 years just going, I'm not going to think about that right now. I'll think about that tomorrow. And never intellectually engaging with the concept of death, which once you do do it, it is scary and it is awful. So if you had a five-year-old, could even be the five-year-old sitting next to me right now eating biscuits, asking you what happens when we die, what would you tell them? I would tell the kid the scientific truth of what happens, which is we kind of sleep and we don't wake up. And then this is what happens to the body. This is what other people do. And, and that's permanent. You won't meet that person again in the way that we understand how we meet people. Have you ever come across that quote by Carl Sagan's wife, Jamila? No. Like Carl Sagan's wife, when Carl Sagan, the very famous scientist, died, she said, can I read this out to you? Because it Please. completely changed me on a cellular level when I read it. She says, when my husband died because he was so famous and known for not being a believer... Many people would come up to me, it still sometimes happens, and ask me if Carl changed at the end of it, converted to a belief in the afterlife. They also frequently ask me if I think I will see him again. Carl faced his death with unflagging courage and never sought refuge in illusions. The tragedy was that we knew we would never see each other again. I don't expect to be reunited with Carl. But the great thing is that when we were together for nearly 20 years, we lived with a vivid appreciation of how brief and precious life is. We never trivialised the meaning of death by pretending it was anything other than a final parting. Every single moment that we were alive and we were together was miraculous. Not miraculous in the sense of inexplicable or supernatural. We knew we were beneficiaries of chance that pure chance could be so generous and so kind that we could find each other, as Carl wrote so beautifully in Cosmos, you know, in the vastness of space and the immensity of time, that we could be together for 20 years. That is something which sustains me and it's much more meaningful. The way he treated me and the way I treated him, the way we took care of each other and our family while he lived, that is so much more important than the idea I will see him someday. I don't think I'll ever see Carl again, but I saw him. We saw each other. We found each other in the cosmos. And that was wonderful. That's the most beautiful thing that we've had on the podcast so far, Ben. (laughs) That's an extraordinary, extraordinary quote. What a beautiful way to think about 
the time that you have with a person and also makes me feel guilty for the sort of administrative bickering that my husband and I were doing this morning instead of relishing one another's company. That stuff, that stuff is important, it's essential and it's needed. So you shouldn't feel guilty about that, right? But I also think like, you know, that quote is such a source of comfort to me because whatever happens, it's a reminder that what we've got right now in this moment is so important and we need to hold on to it. Ben, you're going to be speaking at the Sydney Writers' Festival this year, and this is my segue into politics, which is our final (laughs) subject. As always, there's always a bunch of political topics up for debate because there's so many political memoirs and books written in Australia each year. Mm. If you could have any politician on a panel with you to put some questions to them, current or former, alive or dead, who would you put your questions to? Oh, you know, I could say so many, but right now, because I've finished um, Barack Obama's biography, it, that's a book, you know, like that yeah. that's a really remarkable book capturing a really incredible time in American history. And plus, he's so charming. He's a bit of a pilf. I think it would be Obama, which I'm sure a lot of people would say, so it's not like super surprising. But what I found so interesting about the book is it's not a hagiography of his presidency and who he is. There's like deep questioning. And a lot of the book I found was an interesting meditation on falling short of your goals. What that means, how you live with it, how it happens, um, not making excuses for it, but explaining what happened. And it's not an apologetic book in that sort of way, but it shows you the realities of politics uh, within the parameters that are delivered to you. And I think in that sense, it's a really, um, it's a really important contribution. I think I need to confirm the P in PILF stands for president <laughs> or politician? <laughs> president. In this case, it can stand <laughs> for politician if, if you want to look sideways to whoever you prefer. All right. Final question. How many years, decades, more than that, if you need to, how long is it going to take before Australia has a prime minister of Asian descent? Oh, that's so interesting because do you remember, I think it was Pauline Hanson who raised some sort of moral panic about one day having some sort of lesbian Asian prime minister, to which I imagine a lot of people would be like, awesome. And we think we know who that would be if she'd switch (laughs) houses. You know what I mean? Um, But look, statistically, it's probably going to be inevitable because roughly one in 10 of us uh, have significant Asian heritage, including the two people that you're listening to right now. Yeah, And that's roughly proportionate to how many Black Americans there are in the States. You know, very different histories of race, obviously. But if you're looking at the hard maths alone, we're here in similar numbers. But I do think also at the same time that federal politics, for many reasons, seems to always be a step behind the rest of um, the politic for some reason, uh, for many reasons, actually. So it might probably take more time for that to happen than we get like a premier or a chief minister uh, with with Asian heritage. But we're going to get there. We're going to get there. It just has to happen. Ben, thank you so much for being part of the Weekend Briefing. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Benjamin Law. He will be appearing at the 2021 Sydney Writers Festival. It runs from the 26th of April right through to the 2nd of May. The program has been announced and it looks amazing. It's on sale now. You can just head to swf.org.au. But don't go away because in just a moment, I'm going to be joined by Tate McGregor with The Weekend List. 
Hello and welcome back to The Weekend List and I am thrilled to be joined by the exceptional Tate McGregor today who has some music to recommend for you. Absolutely. Okay, Paul McCartney put out an album yesterday. But Sorry, it's... hold on, hold on, hold on. Paul McCartney like the Beatles? Like the Beatles, Paul McCartney. Okay. He also put out an album last year in 2020. It was called McCartney 3. This one released yesterday is McCartney 3 Imagined and... Excuse the little pun, but he gets a little help from his friends on this one. (laughs) Basically, it's his 2020 album, but he's given his songs over to other artists to cover, and then he's released it as one big collection. So if you are a McCartney fan or if you're looking for a way to kind of, you know, get into his discography and you don't really know his music, this is a way to do it because he brings along Beck, Anderson Pack, Phoebe Bridges, Dominic Fike. Some people from the old, some people from the new to reimagine his songs. And it's pretty cool. We've already heard Dominic Fike's cover of The Kiss of Venus, but the whole album itself is very diverse and yeah, it's just like a really cool project. And then to have it put under Paul McCartney's name as well. He's still creating it. It's still out there. This would be his 19th album solo. Wow. Wild. Jamila, what's happening in your world? What are you what are you consuming? What are you reading, watching, doing? Well, Tate, I am just about to take part in the Launch Housing Roughing It Challenge, which is about ending homelessness for people in Melbourne. But hey, I'd quite like to end homelessness for people all over the country. In 2020, I think a lot of us came up against obstacles we would never have expected. And we worked really hard to keep one another and keep our communities safe. But of course, it was particularly tough for people who live in poverty. And as a result of the pandemic and the subsequent economic crisis, there are a whole lot of people who are facing homelessness and the possibility of having to live on friends' couches, in shelters, or even on the street for the first time. So the Rough On It Challenge is about to start. It's an opportunity for you to raise money to help those who have nowhere to call home. Basically, you sign up to live with no bed, one bag of belongings, and just $10 a day for one day, for three days, or for five days. My little boy and I are going to be doing it, and I think it's going to mean some really important conversations for him and I, as well as a chance to raise some much needed funds. It's going to be pretty lonely sleeping in our living room, Tate. (laughs) Safe, but lonely. We might need a podcast. What have you got? Okay, this one was sent in by a listener called Chloe. Thank you so much, Chloe, for hitting us up on our Instagram at The Briefing Podcast. Chloe sent through saying, I thought I'd let you know about a podcast I'm loving. It's called She Is Legend, and each week they tell the story of a kick-ass woman around the world or throughout history. Really intersectional representation in the stories, and so great at the moment for highlighting women worth looking up to in a time when men in power seem to be so disappointing. Wow. Big words, big words. I did have a look at their page and they do have stories of, you know, the rise of Oprah Winfrey, Greta Thunberg, Jacinda Ardern, Lady Diana. Diana actually really struggled, really struggled with just adjusting and the media attention and by all accounts had sort of no support with any of it, especially not from Charles. But she started to get more attention from the media like than most of the royal family had kind of ever received. But also they go back in history. There's Frida Kahlo, Eleanor Roosevelt. 
I'm definitely going to be tuning into this this weekend. I'm going on a bit of a road trip. So this has me sorted. I think I'll definitely want to listen to the Oprah Winfrey episode. I'm very interested in her story. Tate, that's about all we've got time for today. There is a whole lot for you to do, everyone. But if none of that sparks your fancy, well, tell us what you are listening to, what you are reading, what you are going along to, what you are cooking, anything that you would like to recommend to listeners of The Weekend Briefing. We would love to have your recommendation featured on a show in the near future. If you want to be listening to all those episodes that are coming in the future, then you need to subscribe, folks. Wherever you get your podcasts, just make sure that you hit that subscribe or follow button. You can also leave us a rating or review. It helps other people find the podcast. We'll be back on Monday with Annika and Tom, who will have all the latest headlines. Thank you. Listener.